Chapter Eleven, Part Two of Hilda Wade. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. Hilda Wade, a woman with tenacity of purpose, by Grant Allen. Chapter Eleven, Part Two. A steamer two steamers three steamers sailed and still no sebastian i began to think he must have made up his mind to go back some other way but hilda was confident so i waited patiently at last one morning i dropped in as i had often done before at the office of one of the chief steamship companies it was the very morning when a packet was to sail can i see the list of passengers on the vindhaya I asked the clerk, a sandy-haired Englishman, tall, thin, and sallow. The clerk produced it. I scanned it in haste. To my surprise and delight, a penciled entry halfway down the list gave the name Professor Sebastian. Oh, Sebastian is going by this steamer, I murmured, looking up. A sandy-haired clerk hummed and hesitated. Well, I believe he is going, sir, he answered at last but it's a bit uncertain. He's a fidgety man, the professor. He came down here this morning and asked to see the list, the same as you have done. Then he engaged a berth provisionally. Mind, provisionally, he said. That's why his name is only put in on the list in pencil. I take it he's waiting to know whether a party of friends he wishes to meet are going also or wishes to avoid i thought to myself inwardly but i did not say so i asked instead is he coming again yes i think so at five thirty and she sails at seven at seven punctually passengers must be aboard by half past six at latest very good i answered making up my mind promptly i only called to know the professor's movements don't mention to him that i came I may look in again myself an hour or two later. You don't want a passage, sir? You may be the friend he's expecting. No, I don't want a passage, not at present, certainly. Then I ventured on a bold stroke. Look here, I said, leaning across towards him, and assuming a confidential tone. I am a private detective, which was perfectly true in essence and i am dogging the professor who for all his eminence is gravely suspected of a great crime if you will help me i will make it worth your while let us understand one another i offer you a five-pound note to say nothing of all this to him the sallow clerk's fishy eyes glistened you can depend upon me he answered with an acquiescent nod i judged that he didn't often get the chance of earning some eighty rupees so easily I scribbled a hasty note and sent it round to Hilda. Pack your boxes at once, and hold yourself in readiness to embark on the Vindhaya at six o'clock precisely. Then I put my own things straight and waited at the club till quarter to six. At that time I strolled on unconcernedly into the office. A cab outside held Hilda and our luggage. I had arranged it all meanwhile by letter. Professor Sebastian been here again, I asked. Yes, sir, he's been here, and he looked over the list again, and he's taken his passage. 
but he muttered something about eavesdroppers and said that if he wasn't satisfied when he got on board he would return at once and ask for a cabin in exchange by the next steamer that will do i answered slipping the promised five pound note into the clerk's open palm which closed over it convulsively talked about eavesdroppers did he then he knows he's been shadow it may console you to learn that you are instrumental in furthering the aims of justice and unmasking a cruel and wicked conspiracy now the next thing is this i want two berths at once by this very steamer one for myself name of cumberledge and one for a lady name of wade and look sharp about it the sandy-haired man did look sharp and within three minutes we were driving off with our tickets to prince's dock landing stage we slipped on board unobtrusively and instantly took refuge in our respective staterooms till the steamer was well under way and fairly out of sight of Kulaba island only after all chance of sebastian's avoiding us was gone for ever did we venture up on deck on purpose to confront him it was one of those delicious balmy evenings which one gets only at sea and in the warmer latitudes the sky was alive with myriads of twinkling and palpitating stars which seemed to come and go like sparks on a fire back as one gazed upwards into the vast depths and tried to place them they played hide-and-seek with one another and with the innumerable meteors which shot recklessly every now and again across the field of the firmament leaving momentary furrows of light behind them beneath the sea sparkled almost like the sky for every turn of the screw churned up the scintillating phosphorence in the water so that countless little jets of living fire seemed to flash and die away at the summit of every wavelet a tall spare man in a picturesque cloak and with long lank white hair leant over the taffrail gazing at the numberless flashing lights of the surface as he gazed he talked on in his clear rapt voice to a stranger by his side the voice and the ring of enthusiasm were unmistakable oh no he was saying as we stole up behind him that hypothesis i venture to assert is no longer tenable by the light of recent researches death and decay have nothing to do directly with the phosphorence of the sea though they have a little indirectly the light is due in the main to numerous minute living organisms most of them bacilli on which i once made several close observations and crucial experiments they possess organs which may be regarded as miniature bull's-eye lanterns and these organs what a lovely evening hubert hilda said to me in an apparently unconcerned voice as the professor reached this point in his exposition sebastian's voice quavered and stammered for a moment he tried just at first to continue and complete his sentence and these organs he went on aimlessly these bull's-eyes that i spoke about are so arranged so arranged i was speaking on the subject of crustaceans i think crustaceans so arranged then he broke down utterly and turned sharply round to me he did not look at hilda i think he did not dare but he faced me with his head down and his long thin neck protruded eyeing me from under those overhanging penthouse brows of his you sneak he cried passionately you sneak 
you have dogged me by false pretenses you have lied to bring this about you have come aboard under a false name you and your accomplice i faced him in turn erect and unflinching professor sebastian i answered in my coldest and calmest tone you say what is not true if you consult the list of passengers by the vindaya now posted near the companion ladder you will find the names of hilda wade and hubert cumberledge duly entered we took our passage after you inspected the list at the office to see whether our names were there in order to avoid us but you cannot avoid us we do not mean that you shall avoid us we will dog you now through life not by lies or subterfuge as you say but openly and honestly it is you who need to slink and cower not we the prosecutor need not descend to the sordid shifts of the criminal the other passenger had sidled away quietly the moment he saw our conversation was likely to be private and i spoke in a low voice though clearly and impressively because i did not wish for a scene i was only endeavouring to keep alive the slow smouldering fire of remorse in the man's bosom and i saw i had touched him on a spot that hurt sebastian drew himself up and answered nothing for a minute or two he stood erect with folded arms gazing moodily before him then he said as if to himself i owe the man my life he nursed me through the plague if it had not been for that if he had not tendered me so carefully in that valley in nepal i would throw him overboard now catch him in my arms and throw him overboard i would and be hanged for it he walked past us as if he saw us not silent erect moody hilda stepped aside and let him pass he never even looked at her i knew why he dared not every day now remorse for the evil part he had played in her life respect for the woman who had unmasked and outwitted him made it more and more impossible for sebastian to face her during the whole of that voyage though he dined in the same saloon and paced the same deck he never spoke to her he never so much as looked at her once or twice their eyes met by accident and hilda stared him down sebastian's eyelids dropped and he stole away uneasily in public we gave no overt sign of our differences but it was understood on board that relations were strained that professor sebastian and dr cumberledge had been working at the same hospital in london together and that owing to some disagreement between them dr cumberledge had resigned which made it most awkward for them to be travelling together by the same steamer we passed through the suez canal and down the mediterranean all the time sebastian never again spoke to us the passengers indeed held aloof from the solitary gloomy old man who strode along the quarter-deck with his long slow stride absorbed in his own thoughts and intent only on avoiding hilda and myself his mood was unsociable as for hilda her helpful winning ways made her a favorite with all the women as her pretty face did with all the men for the first time in his life sebastian seemed to be aware that he was shunned he retired more and more within himself for company his keen eyes began to lose in some degree its extraordinary fire his expression to forget its magnetic attractiveness indeed 
it was only young men of scientific tastes that sebastian could ever attract among them his eager zeal his single-minded devotion to the cause of science awoke always a responsive chord which vibrated powerfully day after day passed and we steamed through the straits and neared the channel our thoughts began to assume a home complexion everybody was full of schemes as to what he would do when he reached england old bradshaws were overhauled and trains looked out on the supposition that we would get in by such an hour on tuesday we were steaming along the french coast off the western promontory of brittany the evening was fine and though of course less warm than we had experienced of late yet pleasant and summer-like we watched the distant cliffs of the finisterre mainland and the numerous little islands that lie off the shore all basking in the unreal glow of a deep red sunset the first officer was in charge a very cocksure and careless young man handsome and dark-haired the sort of young man who thought more of creating an impression upon the minds of the lady passenger than of the duties of his position aren't you going down to your berth i asked of hilda about half-past ten that night the air is so much colder here than you have been feeling it of late that i am afraid of your chilling yourself she looked up at me with a smile and drew her little fluffy white woolen wrap closer about her shoulders am i so very valuable to you then she asked for i suppose my glance had been a trifle too tender for a mere acquaintances no thank you hubert i don't think i'll go down and if you're wise you won't go down either i distrust this first officer he's a careless navigator and to-night his head's too full of that pretty mrs ogilvy he has been flirting with her desperately ever since we left bombay and to-morrow he knows he will lose her for ever his mind isn't occupied with the navigation at all what he's thinking of is how soon his watch will be over so that he may come down off the bridge onto the quarter-deck to talk to her don't you see she's lurking over yonder looking up at the stars and waiting for him by the compass poor child she has a bad husband and now she has let herself get too much entangled with this empty young fellow i shall be glad for her sake to see her safely landed and out of the man's clutches as she spoke the first officer glanced down towards mrs ogilvy and held out his chronometer with an encouraging smile which seemed to say only an hour and a half more now at twelve i shall be with you perhaps you're right hilda i answered taking a seat beside her and throwing away my cigar this is one of the worst bits of the french coast that we're approaching we're not far off Ushant. i wish the captain were on the bridge instead of this helter-skelter self-conceited young fellow he is too cocksure he knows so much about seamanship that he could take a ship through any rocks on his course blindfold in his own opinion i always doubt a man who is so much at home in his subject that he never has to think about it most things in this world are done by thinking we can't see the ocean light hilda remarked looking ahead no there's a little haze about on the horizon i fancy see the stars are fading away it begins to feel damp sea mist in the channel hilda sat uneasily in her deck chair that's bad she answered 
for the first officer is taking no more heed of Ushan than of his latter end. He has forgotten the existence of the Breton coast. His head is just stuffed with Mrs. Ogilvy's eyelashes. Very pretty long eyelashes, too. I don't deny it. But they won't help him to get through the narrow channel. They say it's dangerous. Dangerous, I answered. Not a bit of it with reasonable care. Nothing at sea is dangerous except the inexplicable recklessness of navigators. There's always plenty of sea room, if they care to take it. Collisions and icebergs, to be sure, are dangers that can't be avoided at times, especially if there's fog about. But I've been enough at sea in my time to know this much at least, that no coast in the world is dangerous except by dint of reckless corner-cutting. Captains of great ships behave exactly like two handsome drivers in the streets of London. They think they can just shave past without grazing and they do shave past nine times out of ten the tenth time they run on the rocks through sheer recklessness and lose their vessel and then the newspapers always ask the same solemn question in childish good faith how did so experienced and able a navigator come to make such a mistake in his reckoning he made no mistake he simply tried to cut it fine and cut it too fine for once with the result that he usually loses his own life and his passengers that's all we who have been at sea understand that perfectly just at that moment another passenger strolled up and joined us a bengal civil servant he drew his chair over by hilda's and began discussing mrs ogilvy's eyes and the first officer's flirtations hilda hated gossip and took refuge in generalities in three minutes the talk had wandered off to ibsen's influence on the english drama and we had forgotten the very existence of the isle of ushant the english public will never understand ibsen the newcomer said reflectively with the omniscient air of the indian civilian he is too purely scandinavian he represents that part of the continental mind which is farthest removed from the english temperament to him respectability our god is not only no fetish it is the unspeakable thing the moabitish abomination he will not bow down to the golden image which our british nebuchadnezzar king demos has made and which he asks us to worship and the British Nebuchadnezzar will never get beyond the worship of his Vishnu, respectability, the deity of the pure and blameless ratepayer. So Ibsen must always remain a seal-book to the vast majority of the English people. That is true, Hilda answered, as to his direct influence. But don't you think indirectly he is leaving England? A man so fully out of tune with the prevailing note of English life could only affect it, of course, by means of disciples and popularizers, often even popularizers who but dimly and distantly apprehend his meaning. He must be interpreted to the English by English intermediaries, half-Philistine themselves, who speak his language ill, and who miss the greater part of his message, yet only by such half-hints. Why, what was that? I think I saw something. Even as she uttered the words, a terrible jar ran fiercely through the ship from stem to stern, a jar that made one clench one's teeth and hold one's jaws tight. 
the jar of a prow that chattered against a rock i took it all in at a glance we had forgotten ushant but ushant had not forgotten us it had revenged itself upon us by revealing its existence in a moment all was turmoil and confusion on deck i cannot describe the scene that followed sailors rushed to and fro unfastening ropes and lowering boats with admirable discipline women shrieked and cried aloud in helpless terror the voice of the first officer could be heard above the din endeavoring to atone by courage and coolness in the actual disaster for its recklessness in causing it passengers rushed on deck half clad and waited for their turn to take places in the boats it was a time of terror turmoil and hubbub but in the midst of it all hilda turned to me with infinite calm in her voice where is sebastian she asked in a perfectly collected tone whatever happens we must not lose sight of him i'm here another voice equally calm responded beside her you are a brave woman whether i sink or swim i admire your courage your steadfastness of purpose it was the only time he had addressed a word to her during the entire voyage they put the women and children into the first boats lowered mothers and little ones went first single women and widows after now miss wade the first officer said taking her gently by the shoulders when her turn arrived make haste don't keep us waiting but hilda held back no no she said firmly i won't go yet i'm waiting for the men's boat i must not leave professor sebastian the first officer shrugged his shoulders there was no time for protest next then he said quickly miss martin miss wetherling sebastian took her hand and tried to force her in you must go he said in a low persuasive tone you must not wait for me he hated to see her i knew but i imagined in his voice for i noted it even then there rang some undertone of genuine desire to save her hilda loosened his grasp resolutely no no she answered i cannot fly i shall never leave you not even if i promise she shook her head and closed her lips hard certainly not she said again after a pause i cannot trust you besides i must stop by your side and do my best to save you your life is all in all to me i dare not risk it his gaze was now pure admiration as you will he answered for he that loseth his life shall gain it if ever we land alive hilda answered glowing red in spite of the danger i shall remind you of that word i shall call upon you to fulfil it the boat was lowered and still hilda stood by my side one second later another shock shook us the vindaya parted amidships and we found ourselves struggling and choking in the cold sea-water it was a miracle that every soul of us was not drowned that moment as many of us were the swirling eddy which followed as the vindaya sank swamped two of the boats and carried down not a few of those who were standing on the deck with us the last i saw of the first officer was a writhing form whirled about in the water before he sank he shouted aloud with a seaman's frank courage say it was all my fault i accept the responsibility i ran her too close i'm the only one to blame for it 
Then he disappeared in the whirlpool caused by the sinking ship, and we were left still struggling. One of the life-rafts, hastily rigged by the sailors, floated our way. Hilda struck out a stroke or two and caught it. She dragged herself on to it and beckoned me to follow. I could see she was holding on to something tightly. I struck out in turn and reached the raft, which was composed of two seats, fastened together in haste at the first note of danger. I hauled myself up by Hilda's side. "'Help me to pull him aboard!' she cried in an agonized voice. "'I am afraid he has lost consciousness.' Then I looked at the object she was clutching in her hands. It was Sebastian's white head, apparently quite lifeless. I pulled him up with her and laid him out on the raft. A very faint breeze from the southwest had sprung up. That and a strong seaward current that sets round the rocks were carrying us straight out from the Breton coast and all chance of rescue towards the open channel. But Hilda thought nothing of such physical danger. "'We have saved him, Hubert,' she cried, clasping her hands. "'We have saved him. But do you think he is alive? For unless he is, my chance, our chance, is gone for ever.' I bent over and felt his pulse. As far as I could make out, it still beat feebly. End of chapter 11, part 2 Read by Lars Rolander.